Amen. Well, good morning, everybody. It's great to be with you. My name is James Ramsey. I'm a, a member at Pillar Church in Dumfries, and uh, I'm uh, uh, currently in their residency program. I'm looking to, in the next year to year and a half, uh, venture out into vocational ministry. Um, particularly, I'm looking into uh, church revitalization. So it's a, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, we're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 12. If you want to go ahead and turn there, Genesis 12, uh, starting in verse 1, going through 9. We're going to read it real quick, all the way through. I'm going to pray for our time together, and then we'll begin, okay? So Genesis 12, starting in verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran, and Abram took, his, took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, Go, and said, To your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there, he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the east and Ai on Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. Let's pray. God, as we come to your word, we just ask that you would speak clearly to us. We ask that you would... Um, through the Holy Spirit, be um, impressing upon our hearts the truths that lay here. God, we pray that um, that we would be open, that we would be uh, submissive to your word, that we would be in a posture to receive what you would have for us today. God, we, we want to be conformed to the image of your Son. We want to hear from you today. We ask that you would, um, you would uh, change us through your word today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, I want to start our time together uh, today thinking about a scene from a movie that was a big part of my childhood growing up, uh, the Disney classic, The Lion King. Uh, I'm going to assume most of us are, are somewhat familiar with it, but near the start of the movie, uh, little Simba, there's a little lion cub, he wakes up his father before the sun rises, and as a father of three little boys under eight, I uh, really resonate with this scene. Um, so Simba wakes up his father before the sun rises, and Mufasa, Simba's father, um, they go to the top of Pride Rock and look out over the lands. Um, they watch the sun rise over their kingdom. Mufasa is the king. Mufasa, he tells Simba, his son, everything the light touches is our kingdom. A king's time as, as ruler rises and falls like the sun. One day, Simba, the sun will set on my time here and will rise with you as the new king. Simba asks, and this will all be mine? And 
Miss Vasquez applies everything. This scene isn't only significant to me because of the uh, nostalgia it brings of childhood, childhood memories, um, uh, but that is a big part of it. But uh, more than that, as I was thinking about meditating on this passage this past week, I thought about this scene because at its heart, I think this scene is a scene about a father promising his son a vast inheritance, and perhaps more importantly, beginning the step of calling him into a man who will be able to care for it well. I don't know if you've ever had that experience, someone um, in your life who cares for you, sitting down with you, and giving you a vision of what your life could be. Uh, and then more than that, uh, working with you, helping you, calling that vision out of you, seeing the potential and calling it out of you. Uh, at its core, this is, I think, what our, what our passage is about today. This is the call of Abraham, or of Abram at this point in his life. And I'd like to go ahead and just give you the bottom line up, up front here. I want to give you a, a, a sermon summary, just a sentence. The main idea of this passage, what we're going to look at today, um, is that this passage teaches us that God's people trust in God's promises to accomplish God's purposes. So I'll say that again. God's people trust in God's promises to accomplish God's purposes. I'm gonna be, it's going to be a classic three-point sermon here. Um, we're just going to walk through the text. So first I want us to look at God's purposes. Uh, God's purposes call us. The first thing we see here are, um, uh, are God's purposes for Abram. It's important for us uh, to ask when we come to a text of Scripture, what is God doing here? You know, none, of, none of Scripture is, uh, is um, inconsequential. None of it doesn't matter. It all is building in one giant story. It is God's telling of history. So what is God, God doing here? This is, all, this is, after all, what Scripture is for, right? To reveal to us who God is and what he's doing in the world, right? So as we, as we um, look at a text, we should be asking the question, why? Why, God? Why is this here? Um, you know, why, why call this man in particular? Why call him away from his family and his city? What is God doing here? And the best way to answer that question in the Bible is to put whatever story you're looking at into the context of, uh, of that book, but also looking at the entire context of the Bible itself. So let's do that with, with Abram's call here. Um, I want to go back a little bit. I'm not going to you know, traverse the whole of what you guys have already covered, but in Genesis 1, in the beginning, we see that God created man in his image. And in Genesis 1, 26 through 28, it says, Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So in Genesis, we, we, in Genesis 1, we see that God's hope or goal for mankind is that God's image 
would be stamped on every human being that we would reflect the character of God and that we would carry out the work of God in the world. The, a good way I've often uh, thought about it is that we are supposed to be like mirrors at 45 degree angle so that when people see us, they see what God looks like. They, they should see the character of God and, and we are to carry out God's work, uh, being uh, vice regents, you know, uh, taking dominion, subduing the earth, um, causing things to grow and to flourish, blessing uh, the earth as God has blessed us, right? And, and that his image bearers would multiply and fill the earth so that the whole earth would be full of God's glory. That's God's vision for mankind. And we see that then that God is jealous for his own glory. He wants his own glory to be put on display, and we are the vehicles. We are the billboards for God's glory in the earth. He wants his character, his glory, his worth to fill the earth so that there would be nowhere that his creation would go without being reminded how good God is. That, that is our purpose. That is the purpose that God put us here. But as we, we know that this doesn't exactly happen, right? Uh, as we continue on in Genesis, we see in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, they fall and sin enters into the world. And we are no longer the image bearers we, we, were ought to be, we, we were supposed to be. So Adam and Eve fall in Genesis 3, and we have this promise in Genesis 3.15 of the seed of the woman who will one day crush the head of the serpent. Uh, we see in the following chapters that God's people are not carrying out God's purposes. They are uh, going their own way instead of following God's way. But particularly in Genesis 11, we see the Tower of Babel as a complete rejection of God's purposes. So just briefly, we're told in verse 4 of chapter 11. So this is uh, immediately before Abram's call here. In chapter 11, uh, verse 4, it says, Then they said, these are, this is the people who have come together um, after the fall. They've come together. And it says, Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So man had chosen to reject God's purposes in order to make a name for themselves, right? And we see the, the um, contrast between God's purposes in Genesis and what man ends up doing in Genesis 11. So um, rather than filling the earth with God's glory, man wanted to fill their city with their own glory. Rather than taking dominion over the earth, they wanted to climb into the heavens. Rather than living as image bearers of God, they wanted to make a name for themselves. And this is where we find Abram in chapter 12. Abram is presented as a descendant of those at the tower. Born in Ur of the Chaldeans uh, in the land of Shinar, where the Tower of Babel was built, God calls a man from this very people back to God's purposes. And that's what we're seeing here. This is the, the, you know, the story that, that God is telling here. You know, uh, the first 11, um, 11 chapters of Genesis spans you know, many, many, many generations. And then from 12 through 50 is 
three and a half generations. So we see that God is telling this story, and and it gets to Abram, and then he's going to zoom in, and we're going we're gonna to learn about this man that God has decided to call out and bring back into God's purposes for humanity. Abram is going to be the start of a, new, a renewed humanity, much like Noah was, right? So God calls Abram out of this land, out of this people, out of this way of life, in order to begin anew with Abram, much like he did with Noah, except this time, God wasn't going to destroy everyone else. Rather, God was going to use Abram and his descendants to show the world the goodness of God's ways. Right? He's not going to blank slate start over. He's going to use Abram and his descendants to show the goodness of God's ways and the goodness of God's purpose. And that's what God's uh, purposes do to us, isn't it? In us, we're, you know, we're not yet so broken that we, we don't know what God's uh, desires are for us. You know, we choose to either seek reconciliation with God, realignment to his purposes, or we seek a suppression of God's purposes in our lives. We try not to think about that, uh, you know, what we know is right, and we, we try to push forward with what we want. And God was calling Abram out and away from all he knew and he doesn't even share with him the details, right? Go to a land that I will show you. Drop everything you're doing and follow me. The last time I was here, it was about eight, nine months ago now, I preached on Jesus' calling of the first disciples. Um, and in many ways, this is a similar passage. God sees something more for them, and he calls them to it. And they, in, re in response, leave everything and follow him. So this comes to the very heart of the question we started with. What is God doing here? In this passage, God was calling Abram to die to his old life, to trust that God was going to provide a better life. So the question must be asked, you know, what is God doing in our life? What is he doing? What are his purposes in what we are going through right now? And what is it that God is calling us to. We've seen what God's vision is for us, right? That, that we would walk in his ways, that we would be a light to the nations, that we would be, um, that we would be uh, God's glory put on display, his character put on display for, for all to see so that God would be glorified. So we've seen his vision for us. So what is it that he's calling us to leave behind in order to follow him into that future. Abram left it all. What are God's purposes calling us out of? What are they calling us to? God has a vision for your life that would astound you. I think so often that we get stuck thinking of God as one who is out to get us. We're trying so hard to escape our past or escape the things that we're trapped in that we end up running away from God. Like, like God is setting up traps for us around every corner. But let me, I just want to share with you what Jesus says God's purposes are for us. In Luke 12, uh, 32 through 34, you can look there if you want, I'll, I'll, I'll read it. But I've been coming to this passage, coming back to this passage over and over again, because I, I think it's, it's just incredibly comforting and encouraging um, to hear Jesus tell us what God's heart for us is. Um, 
I find it relevant to what we're seeing here. Jesus says in verse 32 of Luke 12, Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Fear not, it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Our God wants to give us his kingdom and all that that entails. That is his good pleasure. That is his heart toward us. He wants to give to us. We must let go of all the things that are distracting us in, the, in this world to pay attention to where God wants to take us. God's purpose is call us out and away from what we think we want. God's purpose is call us to what we truly need. Let's follow that call like Abram. Let's, let's follow that call. Let's uh, let go of all those things that distract us from what God is trying to do and trust in him and follow him. So God's purposes call us. We also see that God's promises compel us. So God has called Abram out of this land, away from his family and into a land that God will show him. But this is not all that God says. He doesn't simply call Abram. He gives Abram a promise. And this promise is one of the most important promises in the Bible. Um, let's, let's just read it real quick. Um, here. So God says to Abram in verse 2, chapter 12, And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So let's take a look at what, what's actually being promised here. What is God actually promising to Abram? He promises him three things, really. Um, first, he promises him land. Right? God promises Abram the land of Canaan to make his own uh, as an inheritance for his children. The second thing he promises is offspring. His wife, Sarai, is barren right now. He has no children. He's 75 years old. He has no children. And God promises him offspring. Not just that he would give Abram children, but that, he would, that Abram would go on to be the father of, of many nations, the father of a multitude of nations. In particular, this promise is what leads to the nation of Israel. And thirdly, we see that God promises Abram blessing. He promises Abram and his descendants his blessing and all that follows from that. So this threefold prom promise will later be repeated and clarified in Genesis 15, Genesis 17, and will continue to be repeated throughout Israel's history. This is what, um, even in Jesus' day, the Pharisees are looking back to when they say, we are, we are descendants of Abraham. You know, what's your problem with us? We're, we're God's children. We're descendants of Abraham, right? You know, they're misrepresenting the, the, the covenant, but this is an extremely important promise, and this is what we've come to call the Abrahamic covenant. God promising land, offspring, and blessing to Abram. And we also want to think not only about the content of the promise, but the context of the promise. If we
we go back to Genesis 3, after the fall of Adam and Eve, we see God cursing the serpent. And at the end of the curse, he gives a promise to the serpent. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So this promise is meant to signal to the reader that we are to be looking, uh, what we are supposed to be looking for from the rest of the story. Each character that's introduced to us in the story from then on, we're meant to ask the question, is this the one? Is this the seed of the woman who's going who's gonna to defeat the serpent once and for all? And what we see is that the Abra- Abrahamic covenant is a continuation of that very promise. Abram is not the one. We see he, he is not a perfect man. Well, we're, you know, if we continue on, uh, Abram going into Egypt, we see that he, he fails. And over and over again, he fails. But God is faithful to his promise. Abram is not the one, but we find that the long-awaited Savior will come through his line. So think about God's blessing so far. In Genesis 1 and 2, uh, the world is full of God's blessing. As he creates, he blesses. Four times in Genesis 1 and 2, he, he blesses what he creates. In the next 10 chapters, God is only seen blessing Noah and his sons after the flood, and then here with Abram. So what that tells us is that through the line of Abraham, because God blesses, uh, God promises his blessing to Abram and his children, through the line of Abraham, uh, God's blessing is going to return to the world. Right? He says, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And of course, this is exactly what happens. We know the, the Bible, it, it is from the nation of Israel, God, uh, Abram's descendants, it's from the nation of Israel that the Messiah comes. Jesus, our Savior, comes from this one man. God promises blessings upon this man and his descendants in order to secure blessings for all the families of the earth. So, question must be asked, how do we enter into these blessings? How do we enter into God's blessing? By trusting in his promises. By believing that God will keep his word. By putting all of our hopes in the God who came to be a blessing to the nations. Let's, let's look at the way Paul talks about this passage in Galatians 3, 7 and 9. Um, Paul says, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Now, I mentioned the Pharisees were, were claiming to be sons of Abraham. But Paul is saying it's not just, it's not, it's not a physical promise. It's, it's a spiritual promise. The sons of Abraham are those of faith who believe in the promises of God. Verse 8, and the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So Paul says that scripture preached the gospel beforehand in this promise. So just like in Genesis 3.15, the gospel was preached. One day, there will be one who will come and crush the head of the serpent. It's preached here again in Genesis 12. One day, one coming from this line will, will bless the nations. 
he will be the one who will, who will, make, who will come to make things right. One who will bring the world back under the blessing of God. Now, how does, how does he do this? Right. We see in Jesus' life um, him uh, fulfilling every promise in the Old Testament. Right. He comes and um, he lives a perfect life, one that no man has ever lived. Right. He does not sin. He is tempted by the, um, by the devil in, um, in the wilderness. Right. He, he overcomes the temptation. He does not uh, submit to the temptation. He does not sin, yet his, his life is taken from him. He, he uh, delivers himself up to be crucified on the cross, bearing, in doing so, he bears our sins. If we, are to trust, if we trust in him, he bears our sins upon himself and takes our sin away, takes the wrath of God from us so that we can walk in freedom without shame, without guilt. We can walk with confidence knowing that God's love, God's blessing rests upon us. That is, that is what this entire book is all about. All of the Bible, and this is the, just the start, right? It's God bringing his people back under his blessing because he loves us. <laughs> because he loves us. He, he did not need to do this. He could have wiped us clean just like he did with Noah again, right? He could have started from scratch, but he loves his people. He wanted us to be with him. He wanted to bless us. It is our Father's good pleasure to give him, give us the kingdom. So, we've looked at the content of the promise and the context of the promise. Um, I also want us to look at the keeper of the promise. I want us to see one more really important thing about the promise. Who is keeping the promise? Let's look at the way the phrases begin throughout this promise. I will make. I will bless. I will make. I will bless. I will curse. It's important for us to see that God is the one making the promise. And it doesn't seem to be conditioned upon anything other than God's good plan and pleasure. This is all about what God is going to do. It's as if he sits Abram down and just says, you're going to want to see this. Um, one of the things that's so important for us to understand is that God is not <laughs> like us. One of the most heartbreaking things um, I've experienced as a father is looking at my three-year-old in the eye and promising him that I will play with him after dinner is done. You know, buddy, right now is not the time to play. Right now we're going to go have dinner. I promise you, I will play with you after dinner. Only to see him looking back at me with disbelieving eyes. Right? The world trains us to not expect people to come through on their promises. I, in my failures as a father, have trained my son not to expect me to come through on my promises. And that's why we're always hedging our bets, right? I can't go all in because I can't trust the guy next to me to do what he says he's going to do. But God is not like us in this. Praise God he's not like us in this. God's speaking is as good as his doing. 
When God says something, it is as good as done. He does not lie. He does not change his mind. There is nothing that can thwart his ability to make good on his promises. God will always keep his promises. And this is why Abram goes. Right? This is why I say here that God's promises compel us. Because there's nothing in this life that we can truly depend upon. Nothing. I think if we've lived for long enough, we recognize that. Right? There is nothing that we can truly depend upon every time. It will always come through for us. Nothing. But God's promises, we can take those to the bank. We so we must, we must drop everything that we have to hold on to them with both hands. We've got to let go of everything we have and grab on to God's promises with both hands because they will last. God's promises ought to compel us forward toward obedience because of the one who promises. God will never fail us. You know, we, we see this uh, again in the New Testament when Jesus has been raised and he's telling his disciples what he expects in the Great Commission. And go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always. Right? He calls them out. He calls them to this great task that you know, they have just failed him. They, have, they betrayed him. And, uh, and Jesus comes and calls them to this great task that they know that they will never be able to do on their own. So Jesus promises, behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And they've come to, come to know that Jesus is one who keeps his promises. <laughs> so too, we, we can trust in the promises of God. God will not fail. Well, lastly, I want us to you know, we've looked at this from God's perspective. We've seen you know, him calling Abram, his purposes in that, seen his promises. I want us to, um, to take a look at Abram and his faith here. I'm just reminding God's people trust in God's promises to accomplish God's purposes. So as we continue through the passage, we see that Abram does indeed follow the Lord's call. Right, the next words we read are, so Abram went, as the Lord had told him. So we've looked at this, you know, from God's perspective. Uh, let's, let's look at what Abram's obedience and it, um, does and his life kind of following the Lord's call to Canaan. What we see is um, maybe, maybe obvious to some of us, but absolutely worth our attention here. We see here an incredible man of faith. Abraham and his story become synonymous with faith throughout the Bible because, um, because of his faith here in chapter 12. And we've already outlined his background earlier, coming from the people of the Tower of Babel. You know, not a great look for Abram. Not a great look for him. He is, at this point, 75 years old, probably not the best candidate to start a new nation, right? especially with the amount of travel that would be involved. If he was being asked at this point in his life to uproot his family, move to a place that he didn't even know the name of yet, his wife Sarai was barren, 
They've never had any children, and yet Abram was supposed to be the father of many nations. When looking at this situation from afar, these seem like pretty big factors to consider. But Abram didn't, um, Abram ended up deciding that none of those factors (laughs) mattered. None of those realities, circumstances in his life mattered. He decided that whatever things looked like, God had made a promise. And that would overrule any other factors in play. And this is what I've come to call um, gimlet-eyed faith. Maybe you're familiar with the um, phrase being uh, gimlet-eyed. But a gimlet is like an old-fashioned tool. It's basically a small, like, hand drill. Um, And from that tool came the expression gimlet-eyed. So being gimlet-eyed is being able to see through the exterior into the heart of a matter. So like maybe when you were a kid, um, your mom said you should have a cookie, but instead you decided to eat all the cookies, not just the one. So your mom goes and finds the cookie jar empty. She comes to seek you out, and she gives you that look where she sees through that innocent face that you're putting on into your soul and knows that you're the one who ate the cookie, right? You were the cookie nabber all along. This is the type of faith I think we see in Abram. Abram employs this gimlet-eyed faith here in order to see past the myriad of human reasons screaming at him that he should not go. So many reasons. He should not believe what he's being told here. So many reasons not to believe what he's being told here. But he sees the see, but he sees through all those reasons to the promises of God, and he goes. For Abram, none of those other things matter. What matters is that the God who made the heavens and the earth has spoken. And whatever things look like now, that God determines reality, not Abram's circumstances. That God will determine Abram's future, not his present circumstances. And that's what, that's what faith is, right? Faith is believing what we cannot say, what we cannot see, hoping in what we do not have right now. And so that's his initial faith to, to go. But then we also see um, in the later verses in this passage, his continued faith. I think we see markers to his continued faith. Um, so... Uh, Look at some of the words. Let's look at some of the words used to describe Abram's movement. So he went, in verse 4, right? He went. He came to, in verse 5. So in verse 4, so Abram went, right, as the Lord had told him. In verse 5, he came to uh, the land of Canaan, right? But then he passed through it. In verse uh, 6, he pitched his tent in verse 8, but in verse 9, Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. What's the picture that we get of Abram here? Especially uh, considering the background that we know of Abram, um, that we looked at earlier, Abram doesn't sit and gather everything together, doesn't try to build something new or start a city. It's really interesting, as you continue to read about Abram's life, you see a stark contrast between, um, between his life now 
and the people that he came from. And what we see is that Abram never builds himself a house. Um, he lives in tents all his life. And he never settles in one place. He's moving constantly. He never builds a city, even though his family grows. The only thing we ever see Abram build are altars to the Lord. It's the only thing we ever see Abram build. Abram trusted in the promises of God and began began accomplishing the purposes of God. Right? Think about where he came from. Right? He came from the people who uh, who built the Tower of Babel to make a name for themselves. But Abram, he goes throughout his life as a, as a wanderer, a sojourner. He never builds himself a house. <laughs> he lives in tents, constantly on the move. The only thing he ever builds are altars for the Lord. He left behind the city of man and began building the kingdom of God. Go ahead and turn real quickly, if you would, with me. We're going to look at Hebrews 11, verses 8 through 16. I want us to see how the writer of the book of Hebrews interprets Abram's life. And remember when I said that Abram's life became synonymous with a life of faith. Well, here in Hebrews 11, the writer is giving his audience um, a list of faith examples to look to in the Old Testament. And over a quarter of his time in this section is devoted to Abram's life. So Hebrews chapter 11, verses 8 through 16. I'm going to read through it real quick. Starting in verse 8, the writer of Hebrews says, By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By by faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Those all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. That is what Abram was seeking after, and that is what uh, that is why we, we look to him as an example of faith. His whole life was lived trusting in the promises of God. Now again, he was not a perfect man, but, but he trusted in those promises. He held to them through it all. 
he trusted that God was going to keep his promises, make his name great. God was going to build for him a city. God was going to um, be faithful. And I, I hope you can see here that Abram's story really is one of trust and transformation. And if you're a Christian here today, uh, that is your story too. I know that's the case in my own life. You know, for 19 years of my life, I lived by my own rules. I did what I wanted. I trusted in my own morality, my own will to accomplish what I wanted to. And it left me, in the end, a husk of a person. I was blown around by, <coughs> by my own mood, by the winds of the culture around me. I had no anchor. So when everything I loved and learned and leaned on was you know, taken away from me, and I was shipped off to Okinawa, Japan, by the Marine Corps, uh, I, I broke. I didn't have anything. Uh, thank God, my, my now wife was patient and kind, and she uh, led me to Christ. And once I took hold of those promises, I was forever transformed. And if you're a Christian here, you know, you know what that feels like. Forever transformed. And God has not stopped transforming me day after day. He continues to renew me, to grow me. And I have found his promises to be sweet and life-giving and most importantly, true time and time again. So if you have not experienced this transformation, allow me to invite you today to look to the God of Abraham and see what he saw. Your creator knows you and loves you. And he is calling you to something better. He knows what you're good at. He knows what you've been through. He knows everything about you. He can number the, the, the hairs on your head. He's seen your life, and he wants you. <laughs> he wants you. He wants to give you his kingdom. He's calling you to something better, namely to trust in Jesus Christ for your salvation, to stop leaning on your own self-discipline, your own good deeds, your generosity, whatever it is that you think will make you right before God when you stand before him in judgment. Cast all that aside. None of that is going to, to mean anything. Cast all that aside and look to the one who was promised here in this passage. Trust in him because there is no other name under heaven by which man can be saved. It is through faith in Jesus Christ alone that we can be restored to right relationship with God. Remember that, that vision in the beginning you know, of, of man um, spreading out, filling the earth with God's glory um, in perfect harmony, no, no sin, no darkness. That is what Jesus accomplished. If we trust in Jesus, these promises are ours to grab hold of. You know, that God will make our name great not because of anything we do, but because of what Jesus has done. That God will um, um, bless the nations, not because of anything we do, but because of what Jesus has done. Paul uh, tells us that every promise of God is yes and amen in Jesus Christ. So if we trust in him, 
we are, we are inheritors of that same promise. We are inheritors of the city that God is building right now, that he is preparing for us. We are inheritors of the kingdom that he longs to give us. So today, I just want to urge you to trust in the Lord. No matter what you're going through, he is faithful. He will uh, fulfill his promises. God's people trust in God's promises to accomplish God's purposes. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that, uh, that you seek our good. God, that even though we are running from you uh, in so many different ways in our lives, that you, um, that you are seeking after us. You are pursuing us. You will follow us to the ends of the earth. You are longing to give us your kingdom. It's amazing, Lord. We thank you um, that you keep your promises. We thank you for your son, Jesus, sending him to die on the cross so that, so that we can be saved from our sins so that we can be right with you so that you can make us the people um, that you long for us to be god we ask for your holy spirit to be working in our hearts we ask for transformation god when we are stuck trapped in sin we ask that help us to trust you help us to lean on you and that your holy spirit would um, would free us set us free God, we thank you for this time. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.